Hello and welcome to Crux Investor. We're here today with Daniel Major, the CEO of Goviex Uranium. Hello, Daniel. How are you? I'm very good. And yourself? Not too bad. And we good. caught up recently, yep. you know, a couple of months ago. Um, a few things have happened since then. So why don't you give us a quick two-minute summary on the business yep. and perhaps you know what some of the things that you're up to at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we are an African-focused uranium play. I mean, that, that is really what we are. The key to us is effectively we have two permanent projects. Uh, one in Niger, one in Zambia. We also have a second project down, a third project down in, in Mali. Um, the real focus is getting that Nigerian project up and running. Uh, we have a first mover advantage because of those permits. Um, the real focus of what we're doing as a company is trying to bring down the operating and capital costs of that project. Uh, it's a pretty good project already, but we feel we need to do better. Um, and our intention is with the rising uranium market, because we believe that's where we're going, this company is targeting building that mine in Niger. Fantastic. So let's start on a macro basis, you know, just to kind of establish the, the, the playing field, as it were, for you know, people perhaps who are new to this before we get into the detail of what you're going to be doing. So describe the bull and bear markets of, past, of the past, of the past. We, yeah, <laughs> and perhaps some, some of the parallels to what you see today. Yeah, I mean, the industry's gone through quite some changes. Uh, I, I think that, you know, if you look back where we were, until... 1985, about that far, mm. this market used to run at a surplus up to 85. From 85 through to about 2007, massive deficit. You had that massive build coming through, and what you were relying on was the transfer of material from government stocks. Effectively, at that period, that's really where everything came from. There wasn't, the, you know, the prices weren't enough to incentivize a lot of projects. You know, at that point, uranium price went all the way down to eight, I remember, because I was at Rossing, and that was my last job, was to redesign Rossing to operate at eight. Mm. Um, but effectively, it was reliant on all of that material coming out and feeding through. Perestroika in 91, obviously, was a major impact because you suddenly had the conversion of weapons across uh, and the down blending of material. And that really carried on. And then you had, the, you know, let's call it the bull run, but it was really a supply disruption-driven bull run that came through which is you know it was tightening up you you were getting less material coming through from from the from the industry uh, from the government you needed more material to come on price started to run Cameco had been building Cigar Lake at the time that was supposed to bring in 10 15 million pounds a year it was ramping up ready for that to come in and it didn't it, it flooded and so suddenly the world market realized that it had lost well over 10 percent of its supply and there was no backup. And that's why the uranium price went all the way up to 130. You then had steady construction. You've got to remember this period as well. You know, we'd had Chernobyl, we'd had Three Mile Island, but that hadn't really stopped the construction of reactors around the world. Um, and Three Mile Island really put the US onto a bit of a shaky ground. It slowed them down a lot, but the rest of the world was still continuous. You had this big growth coming through if you look at this sort of nuclear generation capacity mm -hmm. before that. Um, and that's really where we got to pre-Fukushima, which is the, the producers were now trying to catch up. There wasn't enough material around. It needed new projects. Um, some of the older projects that, you know, like Cliff had already shut down. Uh, the US producers particularly had all disappeared, mm -hmm. um, really. And you needed more growth. And then Fukushima happened. 
um, what Fukushima did was just wipe out 16% of the demand side. So instead of you know the bull market, which was really driven by a supply shock, uh, and then trying to catch up, you then had a demand shock instead. Um, it also had the other effect of stopping the Chinese construction ramp up. So you'd had that phase one, phase two build through, and then they stopped for two or three years as well. Well, they looked at all the safety mm. systems and said, well, we're not gonna build anything, let's wait. So you had a hiatus sitting there as well. Uh, and the industry had to deal with that. At the same time, you had the whole green energy movement on renewables. And now, you know, this was going to be, you know, the new heaven, everything was going to be for free and nothing, you know, we didn't have to pay anything. It was all going to be environmentally friendly. And I think that's really where we've got to now, which is there's a balance coming through where it's clear that the re renewals are not the, the panacea that everybody hopes them to be. Mm -hmm. um, they have a place in this process, but at the same time, you know, people are starting to understand that the nuclear also has its place. It's very clean. It's very easy to bring in a lot of energy very quickly, which you know, you know, I point out when I talk to people, Diablo Canyon in California produces more energy every year than the whole wind fleet in California. California spent over $110 billion on new renewables and they're in the same place they were when they started. Mm. You know, you know the, I saw an interesting comment the other day, more people have died, more people die in half a day as a result of the coal industry than have died as a result of all nuclear incidents since the beginning of nuclear generation. Right, that's, that's a big stat and a big claim. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So let's, let's come back to something you touched on there, which is the clean or green credentials of nuclear. Obviously, in terms of payload, it, it, it's what, 20% of the US and, and you know, and yeah, some, close, some, yeah. something, something like that. So it's important to the US, it's important to a number of other countries. You've got some big fleets being built in, in China, Japan coming back on, um, France deferring. Yeah. Um, so it, it has a place. It's not a case of instead of, it's as well yeah. as, as other renewables. Yeah. So why do you think it qualifies as a clean fuel? People talk about the byproduct, the toxic waste as it were. What happens there? How does that get dealt with? Yeah, uh, people fixate on the, on the waste. Uh, mm. and, and I think you know, a, a large part of the problem here is that you know, people have seen too many Hollywood movies and zombie movies and whatever. Mm -hmm. The, the ability, you know, firstly, the, the waste volumes are tiny. Right. In relation to everything else. Um, you know, you are talking exceed, I mean, uh, the average person in their whole lifetime will not have generate enough uranium to fill a Coke can. Okay, first point. Second, actually, it's pretty easy to get rid of insofar as as long as you've got the right areas to dispose of, you know, vitrification, which is what the French do, which is basically turn it into a big glass block. Right. Uh, so nothing can leak out of it, and then you can bury it in the ground. Right. It isn't going to leak out. Uh, I mean, the Americans do it in large concrete cases, and they do a lot of work on the type of concrete they're going to use. Mm -hmm. This stuff can actually be stored incredibly safely. But at the same time, people completely forget what's on the other side of this. You know, what's going to happen to all these solar panels? The US has no regulations on solar panel recycling at all. Right, interesting. They only last 20 years. They've all got to be trashed and restarted. And a lot of them actually can't be recycled because of the way they laminate them. Mm. They're exceedingly difficult. So, you know, you then say, well, okay, fine, you've got this 
issue. Mm. It's relatively small. It can be dealt with relatively easy. You just put it on the ground, deep underground. Um, you know, with with the right design, water aquifers, and you can mitigate almost all risks. But you compare that to what's out there on the other side, which is all right. What are you going to do with all these solar panels that need to be recycled? It's right. not there. So, or so in, in wind, wind produces more radioactive waste by tonnage than the nuclear industry does. Right. Why? Because of all the rare earths that need to be mined to produce all the, the magnets and things. Okay, that sounds like a topic for another discussion. Yeah, I know, but, the, the, yeah. but, but it oh, just but shows what I'm saying. People fixate on this issue, but you've then got to look at it. So it's, energy has a lot of need for regulation. For, for, for sure. So let's take it back away from nuclear, back to uranium. Yeah. So clearly, again, staying on the macro just for a bit longer, the price, the fully loaded price of getting uranium out of the ground, I think the, the Atomic Institute said something around 55, 60 bucks. Yeah. Right? Today's spot price, a lot less than that. Yes. So that's one of the fundamental problems for the industry as a whole. Yep. What's going to change? If you, yeah, so this is the problem that the industry is, has been dealing with. And the other problem that you have adding into that is if you look forward on the, if you look at the, where we are today, the physical nuclear generation is back pre Fukushima levels. Mm. Okay, so you're back where you are. You've got China now currently committed to eight reactors a right. year being built between now and 2030. Okay. Wow. So that's a lot of reactors yeah. coming on. I think you've got stability over most of the other regions. And they've got the designs nailed down oh, yeah, they, now because they're pretty reviewed. well standardized. Right. Okay. And, and that's one of the things they've done is really brought down the construction timeframe. So you've got this growth profile. It's somewhere between 1.5% and 3%. Okay. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've got a whole series of older mines coming to the end of their lives, including the two next door to us. In Aretha. Okay. So it's about 20% of world production in the next 10 years will just go. These are projects that have reached the end of their resource life gone and you've got the growth on the other side so you you have got to mitigate those the current price really only supports at the moment the Kazakh operations mm. nothing else can really operate mm. and in their case it gets tougher for them as they do we go. know what the Chinese are producing at though they produce so, so small amount I wouldn't even worry about right them. okay I mean they'd like a million pounds a year so the Kazakhs are around so 24, 25 bucks. Well, they're coming of... in at cash costs at about 20. Their all-in right. cost is quite low as well. So right. you know, they come in at the moment, but their life gets tougher the longer they're in production. So mm. you, you have to go through. So, you know, and, and really I think the way I look at the industry and why I think it's different before, and we saw this in the copper industry, if you remember when we had I the did. copper boom. It, the copper yeah. boom ran because every, the inventories ran out. Yeah. And that's really what happened with the last boom that happened in our industry is that the inventories ran out. The government was the provider of the industry. They weren't selling and suddenly the major production unit disappeared as well. Yeah. Everything went crazy. Where you are now is you've cleared out a lot of the excess supply. So we're now in a supply deficit. But I think what I, the way I describe it really is you now got a duopoly in this industry, which is, and it's an interesting duopoly mm. because you have Cameco, who basically said, we're going to keep production out of the market until we get the price we need. There is no point in us continuing to consume up our in-ground inventories unless we get paid the right price to yeah. take it out. So we'll buy up whatever's oh, around. We'll pull down the inventory level. They've kind of come out, and, and I've heard different numbers being quoted, but you know the number I, I think is a reasonable number given where their book was, is about 50 bucks. So let's say Cameco mm. says, at 50 bucks, we will restart MacArthur River. Fine. The difference is you now have 
Kazatom prom sitting on the other side of this, who's like, yeah, we make really good money at 50 bucks. What they are now is effectively OPEC in our industry. But the difference is OPEC would always be a push-pull supply demand on their mm. own. Kaz Atomprom has a market maker in Cameco. It's the simplest way I'd describe this. And so I think what you're going to see is Cameco get the price they want. Kaz Atomprom will then settle their production level to hold it there. And they'll okay. be like, we're happy to get 50 bucks if you're happy with 50 bucks. Right. What we don't need is it to go to 60 or 70 bucks because all that will do is incentivize other projects in and we'll be back to this again. Hundreds of companies. Uh, yeah, and we up. don't need this. Yeah, okay. What we need is a stable industry that goes forward and maintains the projects that can come in, can come in, and those that can't don't arrive at all. Okay. It, 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 yeah, it, it, it sounds quite dubious in, in, in a way in terms of potential price fixing in effect. Yes. I'm not saying it is, but it, no. it sounds like it. Um, but I can understand the need to create some sort of equilibrium in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I think it's less price fixing. It's, I mean, because you know there are always projects that can come in underneath. I mean, and this is one of the issues you're going to have to watch from a risk point of view, which is the Athabasca projects. Mm. How do they fit into that market and not create shockwaves as they arrive? Because you know, you look at whether it's a next gen or a Fission or a Denison. Yeah. Each one of these is a sizable project when it turns up. How does the market deal with that? Fortunately for us, it's probably 10 years from now, and I don't have to worry about yeah, it yet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We just have to get through where so, we are. So who, I mean, <coughs> clearly with that geopoly, the question I was going to ask was, you know, who are the winners and who are the losers but in terms of producers versus developers or explorers? With that kind of level of price sensitivity, clearly right now everyone's underwater. But... Let's say it creeps back yeah, up to 40 I, I, bucks, I think you need to look at the companies that can get away at you know, the $50 mark. Right. Those that you can think are doable at $50, those are the ones you're going to go and say, yeah, that's where I can play so, it so, out. So what, what's the turning point? What's that sort of step change? What, what's the price need to get to before the institutions come back in? Well, the institutions Maybe. are coming in, and what I'm finding as well is an increasing number of uranium funds turning up right. that w weren't there before. But they're not significant, are they? They're, well, they're, they're varying in size. Um, you know, some of them are 20, 30 million dollars. They're not big yet, but it's not a big sector. I mean, the whole, you know, the whole market, the market cap is 15 billion for the whole sector. Right. You know, so, you know, it's not, they don't compared need to, to be, other commodities. Yeah, then, it's, it's, it's a tiny big. sector. Um, so it doesn't need to be um, large amounts, but there are starting to have an increasing number of these uranium focused groups mm. turning up. So. Yeah, I mean, look, when you look at it, who, who are your winners and losers, it's going to be, the explorers will also be interesting. I think if you're looking at an explorer who's outside of the Athabaskas, it's got to be somewhere they can bring their cost in a similar kind mm. of, you know, looking for high-grade areas. Mm. Um, from the, the producer's point of view, we have the other added issue out there, which is Section 232, which we can come back to. Well, but, let's do it now because uh, everyone. Well, I have no about idea it. what the answer is. I mean, I've, I've had my view out there for a while. I think you know, and I, I, I think the problem that I see, and we have no idea. I mean, the documents were filed yesterday. What's in that document? None of us knows. We're all guessing. Mm. I, 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 the way I've tried to rationalise it in my own head is that you. And where I tend to go, which is the which is the geopolitical side of this. Well, that's one of my questions. One my of, issue on this is wholly geopolitical, which is if you are the U.S. government yep. and you're looking at your position in an industry, it's the nuclear industry, but it's also nuclear defense. Okay, 
if you look back pre-Fukushima, you had Japan, you had South Korea, you had the French, you had the Canadians, and you had Westinghouse, which is a Japanese crossover one. So right. these were the guys selling reactors. These were the guys with the technology out mm. there doing their thing. Oh, and the Russians. Where are you today? Mm -hmm. Russia and China. Yeah. And the US is hanging on by its fingernails, hoping to stay bit in the game. Bit of Taiwan, bit of Korea still. Well, no, but South Korea doesn't sell anything. They're basically no? out of the market. The Japanese are out of the market selling reactors. So I'm looking at it from a reactor sale point okay. of view, and that is the geopolitical shove. So okay. you've got China now in the global market offering their reactors for sale. You've got Russia out there yeah. offering their reactors for sale. Well, if you're the energy supplier to the African nations or whatever, this is a Cold War power play. Effectively, yeah. you're selling power, whether it's investment to infrastructure or investment to power, you're driving the development of the developing regions. So, so where does the US sit with that? Mm. And how do they counter? And that's what the government in the US is now trying to do. You've seen them pushing Westinghouse, trying to get the reactor built in India where they've signed up, and they're trying to go elsewhere. So I kind of look at the geopolitical side of this and go, that is the really big picture. There is a, I'll use the new word nuclear war, but it's, it's, a, it's a boardroom war going on here, which is, does the US allow itself to fall behind Russia and China, the other superpowers? But, but, okay, but there's two things going on here. There, there's the, the infrastructure component, which is the plant itself, right? And then there's the need for uranium to... Uh, yeah. So on the other side of this is the supply side, okay? Right. Look, uh, and so given the size of the market, why would America necessarily care? You know, 15, it's not a lot of, it's not a big market. If, I go, if you finish on the geostats yeah. point of view, that whole civil nuclear knowledge base ties into what you're doing from a military perspective as well, okay? Right. Okay, so you've got this whole scientific knowledge base of generation development and going on. Mm -hmm. That is a major play from geopolitics. If you then take that and you go to where the, Euro the US producers are, mm. and they're saying security of supply is the biggest risk you've got here for your existing fleet, sure. for your existing fleet in the US. Sure. Okay, fine. But what happens if you, and everyone will argue that the cost of uranium is not material. The question I then look at is if there was a really good presentation last year at the WNA where Exelon presented their costs and showed how they were working mm. against the gas market. Their margins were not big. So I kind of look at it and go, all right, it's not a big cost, but their margin isn't big either when they're mm. competing. So it does become a big impact on you if you suddenly double the uranium price on you, using that as an example, because you're now just working on a leverage that's here. So your total cost is X, but I'm only making that much. So if I now top that on, the capital's already in. I can't add that in again. It, your core. Mm. So that's how I kind of look at it and say, yes, it doesn't make an impact on the total package, but when you're on the margin, it makes a, a big difference on the margin. And I don't know which way. Do you protect a few jobs in the uranium industry, mining industry? Or do you protect a lot of jobs in the nuclear industry and your position in a global power play? I use that pun there, but yeah. Good one. The, <laughs> yeah, but, but that's, that's how I look at it and go, mm -hmm. I don't know where the government sits on this. And it's not as simple as protecting jobs in the US mining industry. Well, well, yeah, I mean, there's huge parallels, obviously, with the aluminium and, and steel um, yeah. industries there in terms of protecting jobs. But, but I there's think this more is jobs there. But I think this, this is bigger. This is bigger emotionally, not, not necessarily economically. Uh, yeah, it is. And I think, but that's why I say 
I think it ties back to the whole superpower play, hmm. which is what happens if you lose your position in this battle? Because aluminium, great, it's pricing, but you're not going to influence a, a government in Africa if you're not the guy, if you're the guy who's just put in a, a gigawatt power station and you paid for it, mm. your influence over that region is far greater than but, if you but, ship but some cheap aluminium. how many power stations are there in Africa? You mean, there's they're, five they're, down in South Africa at the moment. Right. Now, Zambia's looking at them. Right. Nigeria's looking at them. You've got a number of big they, countries. They've got to pay for these things. So well, no, what the Russians are offering is a build up rate transfer. Oh, right, okay. So okay. they're funding it. Okay. The Russian government is funding the power, uh, proposing to fund the power well, station. Well, this is the next question around the geopo geopolitics of it. You know, Africa is, you know, it's got a lot of product there. A lot of product. Yes. Okay. Other product, yeah. And a lot of other product and a lot of the other opportunities. And those things tend to get tied up. You know, the Chinese have been doing it for a long time. Russians, the French especially, have been doing it a long time. And the French have a huge reliance at the moment in terms of Correct. power. So what's going to happen in Africa with regards to... The, the political powers, Russia, China, already in there, France, in there. The US is trying to you know, have to be, some influence, yeah. but it isn't necessarily getting the, the, the voice uh, that it hopes for. So what's going on? <laughs> I, I, look, I, I mean, part of that is, is the, 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 the Americans tend to, in my view, tend to you know, go global and then keep going back in again. They yeah. become global, then isolationist. Yeah. Whereas Russia and China remain global. Yeah. And that is the problem that, you know, I don't want to get into US politics, but that's its problem in Africa particularly, is it keeps going back and forth and there's no clear strategy of where they're going. Um, but this is one of the areas to look forward, which is why I think it's important, is that the small modular reactor is where this is going to as well. Okay. And this is part of the play. Interesting. What's that look like? Well, the small modular reactors are everything from 10 to 300 megawatts. Mm -hmm. The problem you've got in Africa is it can't, there's very few countries that can handle a big reactor. You know, to put it on a 1.3 gigawatt reactor means you've got to have a grid that can handle this thing. Yeah. Most of the countries don't even yeah. need that much power. However, what is interesting is if you can offer a government in Africa a 300 meg reactor, mm. that they can handle. A 10 meg reactor out here will help this jurisdiction develop and put power over there. What I found interesting, there was a period last month, Canada, the US and China all signed investment agreements to SMR in one month. They all put announcements out, bang, bang, bang. What happened? Why so quickly? Why? Because they're all on the same game. This is the angle, back to the geopolitical angle, I think, which is each of these guys know this is their, this is their leverage. Mm. If you can't, you can't go and sell somebody you know, a truck if they haven't got a garage for it, but you can sell them a car. So don't try and sell them a 1.3 gigawatt reactor. Mm but invest them a 300 meg reactor yep. and you bring it down to the scale they want. And this is now becoming competitive. Yep. So you've got Canada, the US, Russia and China all pushing yep. small modular reactors and all trying to get ahead of the game. And that is becoming very clear because they're all putting money towards it. And that takes me back to my whole geopolitics argument, which is why are they doing this mm. if that's not going to be their end game? You've got to stay ahead of everybody else because you lose your position, you won't get it back. In my view, it's gone. The other guys are ahead of you. So interesting. Again, I think that's probably something we can talk about at great length in another discussion because <laughs> yeah. it's fascinating. I'm not sure anyone has the answers. No, I don't think it's anyone has. It's interesting to discuss. I don't think anyone has, but I think you know. that's where we're going as an industry, and it's the overplay that sits on top of everything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, 
let's let's bring it down. Yeah. Okay. Let's get it because we need to get to GoBX and what you were doing. Yep. Um, so let me start with, you know, so how many companies are you know how many juniors are there in this space at the moment? Uh, there's I think a total of fifty companies in total in the whole sector. Right. Including Cameco and Kazatomprom. Right. You strip those two out, and then you're down to the juniors. Right. Okay. <laughs> Pretty well. Yeah. So they're, they're, everyone's been hit hard. Yep. Because the price is what it is, spot is what it is, and it, it, it costs what it costs to get it out yep. of the ground. Okay, so there will be some winners and losers this yep. year. People sitting, some people can afford to sit around and wait for the price to go up, or yep. maybe get taken out. Yep. Others can't. Yep. Um, so that, you know, as I say, that that's that's going to be a question of uh, the the long the long game potentially yep. there because no one has as as many experts quite tritely say we know we're right. The price will go up. We just don't know when. Okay, exactly. So, which is a sort of a disingenuous statement, really. You know, we're, we're always right. But in this case, people can sense that the price is moving. Stocks aren't. Um, people are going to start need to start needing money soon. Okay, to keep their lights on. Yeah. Okay. Um, whether that's you know refinancing or covering some basic GNA, etc. What are you doing? What am I doing? Uh, we, we took a view a long time ago, and we've really stuck to that all the way through. We, you know, we have 100, £240 million pounds of uranium in the ground. Right. And in 2013, we turned our draw rigs off in Niger and just said, look. That's good. It, yeah. We've got a lot of pounds, guys. Yeah. It, it, could we ch drill out more? Could we change the way? Yes, sure. we could. Right. The reality is, don't keep pouring money into the ground make the project work that you've got. Right. And we've done that all, and then we added the Denison assets to really give us a pipeline and diversify risk. Mm -hmm. And that's really why we did that. Okay. What we have been focused on is really just getting, moving ourselves forward, that when the market did turn, or mm -hmm. does turn, we're mm -hmm. ready for it. Mm -hmm. You know, our biggest single advantage, you know, as we always say, is that mining permit. It's our first, we have first mover advantage. So you're slightly ahead of the game. There's a lot of people sitting around with no permits. With no permits. That's problematic. And in some places, it could be a really long time to get your permits. Absolutely. And that is a lot of cost Okay. to just sit. So it's a massive tick. Massive tick. Ahead of the game. So, the, so the, the bit we really focus on, we did a PFS the last time it was done is 2015. Right. Okay. So my strategy is, is really simple. What can I do to that PFS to make it way better when it turns into an FS? Got it. And that is exactly what I'm doing at the moment. So there's three, th there's four things you need to build the project. Okay. An FS, mm -hmm. the debt, the offtake, and the equity. Those mm -hmm. are the four things you're mm -hmm. going to need. Mm -hmm. All four are totally interrelated. You cannot do one without the other yep. if you want to do this properly. You could do an FS on its own and just stand there and wait at the end, but then you've invested, you know, four or five million dollars, and then you're sitting there waiting. My strategy has always been that FS waits until we're ready to build the mine. And at that point, that's what you deliver to the banks because that's the project you're building. About 20% of the FS is actually the costing. It's actually getting the in detailed costs, yeah. procurement, how we're going to move stuff. There's no point in saying it's going to cost me X, to, but how's it going to get from country A to, to Niger on the mine site? That is the bit you're doing at the end and why it costs so much to do the costing mm. bit mm. at the end. And I don't need to do that until I'm ready to build the thing. Um, so what we're doing now is literally, I sat down with the technical team at the beginning, end of last year when we signed up SRK and SGS. And I use them because they got a lot of experience and they, they, they understand how I work as well. Mm -hmm. 
And I literally said, guys, here's our project. It works at this metal price. All right, what can we do to it to get it down to $45? Right. If, if my view is right that $50 of Cameco and Kazatom Prom is the right benchmark to set, I've got to come in below them. Okay, okay. All right, so that's kind of what we're doing, which is what can we do to the project? So let's go through the things that's costing us from capital or an operating cost point of view. What can we change? What do we, what's new in the last four years that we don't know about and we should be looking at to change right. our project? Okay, so all, all juniors, they go through a process. They've got to be able to get to the point where they can build this thing out if they want to. Yeah. Not many people do because it means huge debt required. The team on board who've done it before. Yeah. But if you don't go through the process of looking like that, you perhaps uh, undersell yourself. Undersell yourself. There's a discount, discount going to be applied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you are where you're at at the moment. You're trying to optimize your, yep. your, the economics around this. Yeah. Get down to 45 if you can, or work out what it would take to get to 45 yep. and give yourself a small window there before, if the price continues to rise, before the big boys turn the taps back on. Okay. Yep. But come on, what, what's, the, what's the reality? What does a win look like for you, truly, look, and, and, for, and for shareholders? Well, yeah, look, I always say the same thing. You never know when someone's gonna walk through your door and wanna pay you more money than you know what to do with. Okay? Sure. You, you never know when that sure. is. And you know, I've ha I have conversations with the big nuclear guys, and the reality is guys want a project as de-risked as they can get it. That's the reality. Sure. So, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, and let's put two examples on the table, you know, where, where you are. Let's say you, you, you go and buy a, a North American, a Canadian project today, mm -hmm. and you come in and you make an investment. You're making a risk decision as of that investor coming in, which is, okay, I'm going to get this thing to a final feasibility study. Given some of the grades, you probably say I can get that to mm -hmm. there, so the grade protects. However, is it going to take me 10 years or is it going to take me 15 years to permit this thing? I don't know, but I'm sitting mm. on it. Or do you wait for GoEx to get in the next 12 months to turn around and say, well, actually, here's, here it is. I've got the debt lined up. I've got the offtake lined up. Here's the feasibility study finished. Mm. This thing's ready to roll. And the permit's already done. Sure. So okay. at some point in that part, and that, that's basically the feedback I get as well, which is we like your project. We see where it is. Continue the de-risking. We'll keep having the conversation. So is that what you're actually doing on a day-to-day basis right now? What is GoVX? What is, what is yeah, Daniel Major That's effectively doing? what I'm doing, which is I'm getting my project. Because those conversations you are having, you don't know whether that guy comes in at the end of the day as an off-taker, an equity player in the project itself, or he takes the whole thing. You do not know what is going to be the end game to the parties you're talking to. Right. And okay. so you talk to all of them because you're doing the same thing with all of them. Right, so it's all pretty moot, a moot point, given the price, okay? Correct. So there's a bit of time between now and it hopefully re recovering, the yeah. price recovering. Um, what do you do in a year's time if the price is, you know, sub 50 bucks? Yep, what I've been doing all along, which is keep the cost as low as I can damn well go do it. Right. But what we've always done is Look at the. I, I always looking at what can I do to my project for the least amount of money, right? To move it forward. What you can't do is sit and do nothing, because the moment you're. Is that true? There's no point you can say I've got to hunker down here. I'll just sit and but wait even around. If you hunker down, yeah. One investors will just give up on you anyway, because all investors want to know there's some capital growth out there. 
You get, sure. They, they, Unless they're underwater, in which case which they may hang around. Not, but they're no longer... Either. They're captive audience. They're captive, they can't trade anyway, right. in which case your share price is just no diving into the ground. Yeah. So you've got to have some... You've got to be doing something to add value. Otherwise, why am I in the chair? If you're hunkering down, then most of the CEOs should just... But, uh, but to be fair, you know, at some point, and there's not just uranium, there's lots of commodities and lots of industries where sometimes there's just nothing you can do. Uh, look... If it's nothing you can do, then you don't need very many people in your company. You need to clear the whole damn thing out right. and settle it down. And then you've got to look at what do you need to do to retain the assets that you've got. And it's mm -hmm. a asset retention problem. Right. What can I do the least thing to do just to hold on to my assets? That's all you're going to do. That's fine. If your shareholders know what that is the story, then you're telling them I'm just a shell for now, guys. I'm not mm. going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here. Mm. Or you look at it and say, what is my strategic steps that I, I believe we have the advantages in or not? What can I do to change it? For example, we don't do any work in Mali. We do nothing. Right. We literally shut Mali down. There's a couple of guys there that look after it. Do we do nothing? No. What we're doing is things like we're doing an ASTA survey at the moment, which is allows us to go and relook at the projects and examine. But that's the bare minimum to keep, the light, keep, keep things it, going, but also, ticking along. We're learning. So you're right. adding value yourself at the same time. Okay. So you're, you're ticking on. But you're adding value because you know we've got 140 kilometers of strike length in Zambia. Yeah. Do something that adds value. Right. The, but at the same point, you've got a lot of pounds on the ground. You know that. You've got your FS and you know it, it looks looks quite good at the moment. As, yeah. it, it's standalone company, it'll be fine. You've got a lot more potential, you know, blue sky, a lot more drilling, you can build out the pounds. But when you've got the money, when the market's there again, and then you know, that does make it yeah. very attractive. But what's what are you doing today that's going to affect share price? Is there anything you can do? Yeah, which is, it comes back to this point again, which is, what is it that I offer for the growth to go on GoBX? And it's Matawela. If I can get Matawela into a position where it's got a very viable project at a much lower uranium price, then I can get that thing built. If I can get operating costs, let me just throw a number out there. You know, I have no idea whether I'm going to get there. Sure, okay. But, you know, let's say I target $20. Right. You know, as long as I can pay that debt, get a project up that's got a, can pay its debt down mm -hmm. over five years mm -hmm. and is running at a $20 cash cost, fine. That, that project, will that company is now up and running and is going forward from that point onwards. Because the one advantage we have in Niger is I've got acres of exploration ground. So I can just keep drilling for the next open pit mine, which is gonna be probably next to Matawela. We just move up one across onto the other and we start, and we just keep growing the project out exponentially as we go forward and you're generating cash. If you get the, you've gotta have a look at where you can take the thing forward. And that's why all of our effort really is on the metallurgy side. Right. The other thing, which is you know one of the options I always get asked, well, what about Arriva's project next yeah. door? Can't you do something with Arriva? Yeah, we talk to Arriva all the time. Do we sign NMOUs? No, I mean, not. Can't be bothered. I mean, you know, an MOU's just a piece of paper. But the reality is, do. But I I will not have you know come to any decision with Arriva until I know what my own project looks like, because otherwise. Sure. I, I may be giving away the deal of the century. Creating more and more admin. Yeah, but yeah, also, may, you know, they yeah. may offer me X, and you go, oh, that's great, but I don't know what I've got over here. Yeah. I need to know what my, that's and it. maybe letting Arriva shut down Commonac and I go into production is a better play, and that I become the hub. 
for the region. Interesting. And the GoVX builds a really good module, and our plant's modular, so we can actually add to it quite easily. Right. I can, and we're putting a lot of technology into play there, which is a lot newer than what they do. Maybe we become the hub for Niger. I build a process plant and I process other people's material for them, bring my own cost down, make a bigger margin. That's the other way of looking at it. Okay, so you're, there's a few options there, and you've obviously look, looked at those and tried yeah. to understand what the options are. You're on the TSX, right? Yep, well, He's, B. <laughs> TSX B, yes. Um, who's going to come in and give you money? Are we, are we taking Russian money? Are you allowed to take Russian money? Uh, um, is look, it the at Chinese? The at the moment, where we are, from a current now, it, it is normal investors, you know, whether it's family funds, it's uranium funds. Right, it's okay. See, because, that, because that's the scale I'm working at today. I don't need a lot of money to do the things I'm trying to do today. When I come to the big ticket, which is where do I find $100 million mm. of equity, mm. that's part of this why you're communicating with the big utilities that are out there saying, okay, because at that point, I'm gonna be saying, here's my debt pipeline. Mm. It looks like this, but it needs this equity to come in with it. Here's my offtake agreements that I've got, which are supporting the debt, and so you know you're putting your equity in under those offtake agreements, and that's how the cash flow is going to look going forward. How much of that equity is going to be industry players? How much of it's going to be the market? Mm. I have no idea today. We won't know until we get to that point, and then we'll figure it out okay. as so, part of the play. So, right, there's a bunch of juniors still around, yep. somewhere under 50. Under 50. Yep. Um, so tell us. Don't don't give me the generic answer. Give me the real hard, <laughs> cold facts. Why is GoVX going to be around when others aren't? Yeah. Assuming the price doesn't move for the next twelve months. Look, GoVX has really good projects. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, they are really good projects. Do we believe we can get our projects away at a lower price? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, what makes you say that? Because I think we have. We're working very hard on getting that done. And you know we what have, everyone else is doing? Yeah, you feel? yeah. I mean, we're, we're doing you some things that, that are that? different. Okay. Um, we're applying some different things to it. They're great projects, and they're in jurisdictions which they're already permitted to go. Right. Uh, you know, and, 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 and fine, let's say you go on to a North America, you know, there's some great North American projects out there, but if the market's not going anywhere, they're just going to be permitting. It's all technical. They're, they're <laughs> sucking you're cash. You're all underwater. Yeah. We're all, they're just sucking cash <laughs> yeah. as well, sitting yeah. there doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that changes. I think what we've got at least is, you know, and we're doing some interesting things, for example, at the moment in, in, in Mali, we're looking at the gold potential we've got on there. We're actually okay. part of the gold belt. Um, will right. we do it? No, we probably get do it with somebody else. Sure. But there's gold down there. You know, in Zambia, you know, we're looking at whether we can bring in someone on a more local basis to help support the project down there. So we look at- Wait, What do you mean a more local basis? Can we get a Zambian partner okay. in, on board? Okay, you know, financial partner. Yeah. Right. So, so okay. you know, you have to look at the optionality that's around you and say, right. do I want to keep funding as GoVX everything, or are there other ways to defer costs and, and focus on the things that we want to focus okay, on? Okay, so what, what else have we got for investors? Why, why should they still be listening to you? <laughs> I, I think at the end of the yeah. day, you, know, you, you, you gave me a scenario where uranium price does yep. nothing. I don't think that's the case. Okay. I think we're very much in a case where the uranium market is going to do something. And then Section 232 is part of that. 
Is, is, that, is that good for non-American companies too? I, I think the reality is we have no idea what's going to happen with Section 232 right. today. I think the reality... But is it driving a narrative which suggests even if, if I think nothing the, happens? I think the narrative is it's a bit like a Brexit conversation. <laughs> uh, we won't go into the politics of Brexit, sure. but the same conversation applies. Right. We don't care. Just right. can we finish the conversation right. so we can get on with it? Okay. And I think that's exactly where we are with Section 232, which sure. is... Can we please finish this conversation? Because once it's finished, we can all get on with it. And the market is, the sense from the market is that particularly the US utilities are basically sitting on their haunches doing nothing until it's resolved because they don't know what to do. True, true. And they're pulling inventories down as a result. Okay, so 232 may or may not have a bearing on you as a non-American business. But, so we're, but it will take the break off the market to a degree. Okay. Because the U.S. utilities. You're making will that know. call. You're going yeah. with that call. Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's the, the the reality is that utilities in the U.S. you can see have not been actively trading material. Interesting. Okay. They are being put, pulling down their own inventories because they don't know where their material is going to have to come from to process to go forward. Right. And if they suddenly get told that from now on, 25% of your material is going to be U.S. produced from tomorrow. Right. They're going to be mm, big problem here. Why did we buy all that stuff last week from that right. guy down the road right. who's not in the US? Okay. So rather than make a decision, let's just pull down on the inventories we have got, defer that pro defer that buying until we know where we're going to be. Okay. So go, go VX, you've got permits, um, you've got good assets, you, you've got an, you know enough about what you've got under the ground to get a sort of sense of yep. working towards some form of economics and optimization of those economics. Um, you, as a business, you're here. You're here today, but you're competing. You've got a, you think you've got a sense of what other people are up to. Your lights are still going to be on in, in, in 12 months' time. Yeah. What's the only thing that could stop that? Um, a black swan, another right, another yeah. Fukushima type event. Um, and I don't see, you know, one thing that Fukushima has done is is smarten up a lot of the reactors around the world. So that your chance of that occurring is probably pretty slim. Um, is it always a chance? Absolutely. Um, you know, this is an industry where, you know, things do happen. Right. But very, very rarely um, around the world. Okay. So we'll finish off. You, th you believe you've got the fundamentals right. Yep. And mining business is about fundamentals. Yep. Slightly hampered by the sentiment at the moment in terms of around, around pricing. But you feel that this year, you've made that call, you think it will change. Yep. And that's going to be good for GoVX. Yep. Invest here, is that what you're saying? Exactly. And what we've always done yeah. is is limit the expenditure right. to mit where the market is at the time. So even though we have a very positive view, I'm not going crazy on spending money. I'm actively saying what achieves the most value for the least expenditure to get me further down this path. You know, don't go out and on a big drill campaign for something that can wait six months because it's not a critical path item. Right. Do the things that add value for the least expenditure. Is that your big thought you want to leave investors with? Exactly, and we're super cheap relative to our peers. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks again for your time, Dan. Lovely always, to see you. It's always a pleasure. Very informative, always. as always. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest, and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.